Thank you guys for coming back. I believe this is part 17 of extremist literature, pure worship of Jehovah. That's actually pretty impressive. We've made it really far. Really happy with that. Um, so I believe we left off on page 102. Just to give a quick recap, as far as I can remember, they were talking about these five promises. Promise number one was no more idolatry or other disgusting practices associated with false religion. Number two was a return to their homeland. So this is just like, these are promises that Jehovah was giving to uh, the Israelites, I guess, in the book of Ezekiel. Promise number three was the resuming of gift offerings at Jehovah's altar. It's kind of peculiar. Uh, and then promise four, the sifting out of bad shepherds. And then finally, promise five, unity among worshipers of Jehovah. Now, I touched on this in the last one. Unity among worshipers of Jehovah is, it, it, it seems desirable, but this is part of their technique to break down the personality, break down the persona of the you know, of the member and replace it with a mask, replace it with the personality that they want. Uh, so anyway, that's, you know, that's where we left off on page 102. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just read paragraph 19, it, promise number five, just so we get caught up with where we were before, and then we'll continue on down. So this was the fifth promise, apparently. Uh, from the book of Ezekiel that Jehovah gave to the Israelites. Promise number five, unity among worshipers of Jehovah. Imagining, I'm sorry, imagine how distressing it was for faithful worshipers to, uh, to see disunity among God's people before the exile. Influenced by false prophets and corrupt shepherds, the people rebelled against the faithful prophets who represented Jehovah. The people even broke into opposing factions. Thus, one of the most appealing features of the restoration was this promise through Ezekiel. I will give them a unified heart, and I will put a new spirit in them. As long as the returning Jews remained at unity with Jehovah God and with one another, no opposer could defeat them. As a nation, they could once again bring glory to Jehovah instead of reproach and dishonor. So again, that was just them. That This is Jehovah's Witnesses drilling home this whole unity this replace your your authentic self with the cult personality that they want them to have that kind of thing that's what they're doing here and you see a lot of this throughout their literature i mean we've seen a lot of it up to this point in this book so that was paragraph 19 promise number five that was the last promise so let's take a look at uh, paragraph 20 see what it has to say were those five promises fulfilled on the Jews who returned from exile? We do well to remember the words of faithful Joshua of old. Not one word out of all the good promises that Jehovah your God has spoken to you has failed. They have all come true for you. Not one word of them has failed. So it was in Joshua's day, so it had to be in the days of the exiles who returned to their homeland. So that's paragraph 20. Um, I find it fascinating how Jehovah's Witnesses are always talking about how Jehovah ha will never fail in a promise, has never failed in a promise, and he will be on time. We don't know when that time is going to be, but he will be on time. 
even though we don't know. We have no way of verifying if he'll be on time. We just know it. I just love it. I love the logic. It's ridiculous. Okay, so that was paragraph 20. And actually, there's a little section here on page 102. Kind of comes in the middle of paragraph 20. It says, why 1919? So I've talked about this a couple of times uh, so far in the series. Just to give you guys a little recap, Jehovah's Witnesses think that 1914 was the end of the Gentile times. They just needed to fill... You know, they, I mean, they made this prediction. They couldn't have another failed prediction. So they needed to make something up. So they claimed it was the end of the Gentile times. Now we're in the time of the last days or whatever, after 1914. And then they made another prediction for 1919. Uh, this was Charles Taze Russell, the founder, I believe, made, this, made these predictions. Uh, he said 1919 was going to be the end. Well, guess what? Nothing happened in 1919 again. So he had to make something up for that, too. What happened in 1919? It's significant. So what they ended up doing was they said that 1919 was the year that Jesus picked the Watchtower Society or, what, or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever as his chosen organization. But actually, Jehovah's Witnesses as a religion didn't exist until the 30s. Before that, they were known as the Bible Students. Jehovah's Witnesses branched off of uh, the Bible students. It, it's like a sect. They split off of it. And the Bible students actually still exist today, which is fascinating to me. If, they, if Jesus picked the Bible students in 1919, as it says here, then Jehovah's Witnesses aren't the chosen religion. They're just ignoring their own history. They're pretending it didn't happen. It's just so fascinating. Okay, let's give it a read. It says, why 1919? Why do we say that God's people were freed from bondage to Babylon the Great in 1919? A combination of Bible prophecy and the facts of history help us arrive at that conclusion. Okay. Oh, I love it. Bible prophecy and history show conclusively that Jesus began reigning as king in heaven in 1914, signaling the start of the last days of Satan's system here on earth. What did Jesus do upon becoming king? Did he immediately free his earthly servants from bondage to Babylon the Great? Uh, let me see. Did he appoint his faithful and discreet slave, quote-unquote, in 1914 and begin in the great work of the harvest? Evidently not. Remember, the Apostle Peter was inspired to note that judgment would start with the house of God. In a similar vein, the prophet Malachi foretold the time when Jehovah would come to his house of worship, accompanied by the messenger of the covenant, the Son of God. That time would be a period of refinement and testing. Does history harmonize with those prophetic indications? Okay, now let me just read this, the, the middle part here. It says, uh, let's see, Jesus began reigning as king in heaven in 1914, signaling the start of the last days of Satan's system here on earth. What did Jesus do upon becoming king? Did he immediately free his earthly servants from bondage to Babylon the Great? Did he appoint his faithful and discreet slave in 1914 and begin the great work of the harvest? Okay, so he didn't actually, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, in 1914, he didn't appoint the faithful and discreet slave. I believe that was in 1919. That's what they're saying here. And I guess he didn't free his earthly servants from bondage, as in he didn't, uh, what, end... I, I guess he didn't kill all of the evil people and make the paradise uh, on earth like they claim is going to happen. Um, I'm not really sure why they're saying that he didn't do that, though. In a similar vein, the prophet 
Malachi foretold the time when Jehovah would come to his house of worship, accompanied by the messenger of the covenant, the Son of God. I don't know. This is just confusing. I, it, it's ridiculous. Okay, let's move on. So this that was paragraph 20 that we, ju- we covered last. Let's take a look at paragraph 21. The Jews gave up idolatry and the other disgusting practices of false religion that had alienated them from Jehovah. Against all likelihood, they resumed living in their homeland, cultivating it and enjoying productive lives there. One of the first things they did was to restore Jehovah's altar in Jerusalem and make acceptable offerings there. Jehovah blessed them with fine spiritual shepherds, such men as the faithful priest and copyist Ezra, governors Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, high priest Joshua, and the courageous prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. As long as the people remained responsive to spiritual direction and guidance, they enjoyed a unity like any, uh, unlike any they had known in a long time. You know something else that I find really, really interesting? Um, like, a lot of the names that we use in the U.S., this is kind of unrelated to, like, this uh, book or whatever, but a lot of the names we use in the U.S. are Jewish names, like Sarah and David and Joshua. Like, those are super common U.S. names or, or Western names. Uh, and, you know, we find those names in the Bible all the time. I don't know, it's just kind of really interesting to me, I guess. So that was paragraph 21. Let's take a look at uh, paragraph 22. Without question, the initial fulfillment of Jehovah's restoration promises... I'm sorry. Yeah, that's weird. That's oddly worded. Without question, the initial fulfillment of Jehovah's restoration promises was encouraging. Still, that fulfillment... I'm sorry. Still, that fulfillment was really only a foregleam of something much greater. How do we know that? Well, the promises were conditional. Jehovah would fulfill them only to the extent that the people remained obedient and responsive. In time, the Jews again became disobedient and rebellious. But as Joshua pointed out, Jehovah's word always comes true. So the promises would see a greater, more lasting fulfillment. Let us see how that came about. I just, I'm confused because it seems like, isn't Jehovah all-knowing and all-powerful? It's, it's odd to me that they would paint him as, I mean, why would he even make promises knowing that they would be, you know, that these people would fail him or whatever, and then he'd have to go through all this work to reverse the damage and fix everything? It's like, why did he, why did he put that tree in the Garden of Eden if he knew Eve was going to eat it? And then, after that, why did he appear in the Garden of Eden in human form and look for Eve and Adam? Didn't he know where they were? Why was he looking for them? Isn't he all-knowing? Why was he calling out for them in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in like the first two chapters? Why? Why was he doing that? He's not all-knowing. The Bible never implies he's all-knowing or all-powerful, at least not the Old Testament. Um, but the Old Testament is a very different book than the New Testament. I just think that's so fascinating. Actually, I got um, I got the Bible on audiobook, and it was like ridiculously long. It was like 60 hours long or something. It was the NIV version. 
And I think I got like halfway through the Old Testament before I just burned out on that thing. But I do have it. And one of these days I'll go back through the, the whole thing, start to finish. But anyway, um, I don't know. It's a really interesting read. Like the Bible is, the different books of the Bible are written from different perspectives. They're different, they have different literary value. Um, they're written as stories in many cases, really fascinating stuff. And, and really, it's complete bullshit, I believe. The Bible is just total BS. Um, I, don't, I don't believe that it's inspired by God. But it's still a really interesting read. I think it's still worth a read, just for its literary value alone, not for its theological value. But anyway, okay. Let's continue on. So that was the that was paragraph twenty two. Uh, that brings us to paragraph twenty three um, under the subheading "I will take pleasure in you." That sounds kinky. Okay, paragraph twenty three. As students of the Bible, we know that this wicked system of things entered its final decline, its last days, in nineteen fourteen. I love it. As students of the Bible, aka as Bible students. For servants of Jehovah, though, this is not an era of sad decline. In fact, the Bible indicates that 1914 saw the beginning of a thrilling period, the times of restoration of all things. How do we know that? Well, what happened in heaven in 1914? Jesus Christ was enthroned as the Messianic King. How was that event a restoration? Remember, Jehovah had promised King David that kingship and his family line would endure forever. That kingship was interrupted in 607 BCE when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and ended the rule of the Davidic kings. Yeah, that did not happen in 607 BCE. Uh, If I've said this once, I've said it a billion times. They got the date wrong there. We know that for a fact. You know what I find super fascinating about this? So they're harping on this whole thing where King David is going to... Somebody from his line will always rule as king. And they're saying that uh, the book of Matthew carries Jesus' lineage down uh, all the way to King David, right? And in fact, that's how a lot of modern people, I don't like, for example, that's how uh, Joseph Smith of the Mormons um, claims to have this special authority. He can trace his line all the way back to King David, and that's because he traced it all the way back to Jesus. It's just complete BS. But anyway, the interesting thing about it, so the first chapter of Matthew is just saying, you know, Jesus, son of this, son of that, uh, son of whoever else, and it just goes down his lineage all the way down to King David. The thing is, it starts with Jesus, son of Joseph. But Joseph wasn't in the mix at all, was he? Did he get up in there at all? Uh, I thought Mary was a virgin, wasn't she, according to the scriptures? Uh, So Jesus was a love child of Mary and God. Joseph was just some douche standing on the sidelines uh, raising this guy. You know, is like a a stepchild, no more than a stepchild. But Joseph's line is who they traced back to David. So is Jesus from the line of David? Because he's not genetically related in any way to King David. The Bible says he is not genetically related to King David. 
I, I just don't understand the logic here at all. And actually, Mary, it, the, the Old Testament never says anything about the Messiah's mother having to be a virgin. But when the book of Mark, the first gospel to have been written, was written, the writer mistranslated the word from the Old Testament and thought it said virgin. It's, it actually said young woman, not virgin. So it doesn't, uh, but you can see the writer of Mark and the writer of Matthew trying to make Jesus fit the mold of the Messiah by going down the list of requirements from the Old Testament that the Messiah, or that this person had to meet to be the Messiah, and uh, giving Jesus all of those attributes, you know, uh, born of a virgin and, and all of that other stuff. But like I said, um, that was a mistranslation. So it's just really fascinating to go back and look at it. I think the Gospels were written, uh, it was first, I think, Mark, and then Luke, and then Matthew, and then John. I think that that's the correct order. Mark was definitely first. John was definitely last. Uh, if you guys want to read more about that or something, uh, you can check out Bart Ehrman. He's awesome. I'll put a link to him in the description. Anyway, so that was paragraph 23. Here's 24. As the Son of Man, quote-unquote, Son of Man is a very specific term referring to the Messiah, I think. As the Son of Man, Jesus was a descendant of David. No, he wasn't. And thus became the legal heir to the Davidic kingship. No, he didn't. In 1914, when Jehovah granted Jesus the heavenly throne, the times of restoration of all things began. Now the way was open for Jehovah to use that perfect king to continue the work of restoration. That was uh, 24. That was actually pretty short. So let's, let's move on to 25. One of Christ's early actions as king was to join his father in an inspection of the arrangement for pure worship on the earth. Okay, now they're talking about what happened after 1914. They're getting into 1919 now. As Jesus had foretold in this, I'm sorry, as Jesus had foretold in his illustration of the wheat and the weeds, which is ridiculous. It was an awful illustration. You don't leave weeds in until the end of harvest. You pull them out so they don't drain the life from the other plants. You'll have garbage crops. As Jesus foretold in his illustration of the wheat and the weeds, it had long been impossible to distinguish uh, wheat from weeds, genuine anointed Christians from imposters. Now, though, the harvest season arrived in 1914, and the distinction was clear. For decades leading up to 1914, faithful Bible students had been exposing the gross errors of Christendom and were beginning to separate themselves from that corrupt organization. It was Jehovah's time to restore them fully. So in early 1919, just a few years into the harvest season, God's people were set completely free from captivity in Babylon the Great. The exile was over. So there you go. They're saying, um, <clears throat> I forget what year the Bible students started. Uh, Charles Taze Russell started them, I think, in like 1870 or 1872, somewhere in there. And then 1874 was kind of his first end-of-the-world prediction, and it failed. And then he made a whole, you know, a whole string of other uh, end-of-the-world predictions. Finally landed on 1913, and it failed, of course. So he reworked it and came up with 1914. Failed, but he was like, I mean, how many of these can I make before people start jumping ship? They're already kind of jumping ship. So he made something up for the events in 1914. 
then created a new prediction, 1919. That's what happened. And here we are. Uh, what is this? Oh, a hundred years later. A hundred years later, actually, because it's 2019. So, a hundred years after 1919, we're sitting here talking about this massive group of people, 8.5 million people, who still believe this garbage. It's so crazy. Okay. So, uh, let's see, it says, it was Jehovah's time to restore them fully, so in early 1919, just a few years into the harvest season, God's people were set completely free from captivity in Babylon the Great. Of course, Babylon the Great being, like, you know, Christianity, like false worship or whatever. The exile was over. Okay, that was paragraph 25. Let's give paragraphs 26 and 27 a read. The restoration prophecies of Ezekiel began to see fulfillment, I'm sorry, began to see fulfillment far greater than than any that God's people had seen back in ancient times. Let us now consider how the five promises we've already examined have seen a greater fulfillment. Okay, so that was paragraph 26. Now what they're saying is, we discussed the five promises last time. They're saying that there was more to those five promises Uh, that the Bible didn't reveal, but now the Watchtower Society is revealing this information for us, even though the Bible doesn't hint at it. God meant it, he just didn't put it there for them. So, um, I guess God just wanted us to need the Watchtower Society. That's why he didn't put it in the Bible. Who knows? Anyway, uh, so let's take a look at their interpretation of the promises and how they apply today. Here's promise number one, paragraph 27, an end of idolatry and other disgusting religious practices. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, faithful Christians were gathering together and were beginning to discard false religious practices. So remember I said, I think it was like 1870 or 1872 or something when they started. That's near the end of the uh, 19th century. Uh, Let's see. Veneration of a that's a, I've never seen this word before. Veneration of a triune God, T-R-I-U-N-E, weird word. Veneration of a triune God, I'm assuming that means the, the Trinity. Uh, belief in the immorality of the human soul and the hellfire doctrine were all cast aside as unscriptural teachings with roots in false religion. The use of images in worship uh, was exposed as outright idolatry. Gradually, God's people also came to see the use of the cross in worship as a form of idolatry. So that's promise number one. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses go way overboard with things. Way overboard. So I've heard them talk about, you know, you can't celebrate Christmas because it's got pagan roots. You can't celebrate Valentine's Day because it's linked to a saint. You can't celebrate Halloween because it's got ghosts. You can't celebrate anything. Just anything. They've got a reason for everything. Can't celebrate birthdays because it's a form of self-worship. And every time there was a birthday in the Bible, somebody lost their head. Uh, You know, you have to draw a line somewhere. You have to say, this is too far. That's stretching it too far. That's ridiculous. We're just having fun here. There's nothing wrong with this. And that's why I celebrate Christmas as an atheist. Because it's just fun. I'm not going to tear it apart and come up with all these reasons why I shouldn't support this thing or, or whatever else. I'm just going to have fun. Bottom line, you know, it's harmless fun. And that's the extremist side of Jehovah's Witnesses. They like doing that. They like finding every little thing wrong with everything. 
and picking at it. A couple of other things I wanted to make note of here. Uh, they mention three doctrines. They mention the Trinity. They mention the belief in the immorality of the human soul. And then they mention the Hellfire Doctrine. So I don't know about the second one there, the belief in the immorality of the human soul. I've never, I don't think I know of that. Uh, maybe I just don't know it by that name. But the Trinity is actually legitimately false. That's not in the Bible. That was added later, actually. Um, I'm just being fair here to Jehovah's Witnesses and everything. That's, that's, that's BS. Trinity is not real. And also the Hellfire Doctrine is also not real, interestingly enough. You know, I find it interesting that they picked those three things to talk about. I don't know about number two. I don't even know what that is. But Hellfire and Trinity are, are not in the Bible, actually. They were added later. Um, and then they mention the use of the cross in the worship uh, as idolatry, things like that. that. That goes back to me saying, you know, don't split hairs. Give it a rest. It's okay to celebrate birthdays. It's okay to wear a cross if that's what you want to do. It's not idolatry, you know. If God gets offended that easily, if he's that much of a snowflake, he doesn't deserve to be the ruler of the universe. He doesn't deserve my worship. So anyway, that was uh, paragraph 27, promise number one. Here's promise number two. A restoration to the spiritual land of God's people. As they left Babylonish, that's weird, as they left Babylonish region behind, never heard it referred to uh, that way, Faithful Christians found themselves in their proper spiritual land, a blessed condition or environment where they would never again suffer spiritual famine. As we see with, uh, I'm sorry, as we will see further in chapter 19 of this publication, Jehovah has blessed that land with an unprecedented flow of spiritual nourishment. So the underlying implication here is that the Watchtower Society is providing an unprecedented flow of spiritual nourishment quote-unquote. They're putting out a massive amount of literature for their people to read and all this stuff. But that's not true, is it? Uh, they used to put out, I think, uh, what was it? It was, I'm trying to remember, I think it was like two magazines per month. It was the Watchtower and the Awake. It, it was the first and the 15th of the month they would release them. And they were 32 pages long. And now they release one per month, if I'm remembering correctly, and it's 16 pages long. It got cut into fractions. They are not releasing spiritual nourishment at an unprecedented flow. It's just not true. They're not. I just think that's fascinating that they're, they're, they're lying. I mean, that's not true at all. And they know it's not true. Even, even under their own belief system, they know this is not true, and they're still saying it. Uh, so there's another section here uh, right above that paragraph. Prophecies of captivity and restoration. It's a timeline. It says, Many prophecies about the captivity of the Jewish people in ancient Babylon saw a second greater fulfillment in the much later captivity of the Christian congregation in Babylon the Great. Note some examples. So the timeline starts with 607 BCE and then goes to 537 BCE. Uh, that's supposed to be the 70 years. According to them, 607 is when Jerusalem fell. And then 537 is when it was rebuilt. And then there's a wrinkle in the timeline implying we don't know what happened there. And then we get to 100 CE or 
something. I guess not that we don't know what happened there, but I guess they're saying there's just a really big gap of time there. Then we get to 100 CE, uh, and it says, Jesus, Paul, and John were the congregation, but apostasy, uh, I'm sorry, apostasy still flourishes. Oh, okay, so they're kind of comparing them. Oh, uh, that makes sense. So we've got two timelines, basically, 607 to 537, and then 100 CE to 1919. This is kind of their way of proving that, that God chose them as his chosen organization. And they're parallels. So before 607 BCE is parallel to before 100 CE. So before Jerusalem fell in 607 is, is parallel to before Jesus came back, or before Jesus appeared on earth the first time. Uh, it's the first fulfillment and the greater fulfillment is what they're saying. So before 607 BCE, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel warned Jehovah's people, yet apostasy still flourishes. And then the greater fulfillment of that is first century CE, Jesus, Paul, and John warned the congregation, but apostasy still, fl still flourishes. And then we've got after 607 BCE, uh, Jerusalem destroyed, God's people taken captive to Babylon, and then the greater fulfillment is starting in the second century CE. True Christians are taken captive within Babylon the Great. And then finally, we've got after 537 BCE, the restoration is what it says. A faithful remnant returns to Jerusalem, rebuilds the temple, and resumes pure worship. And then after 1919, is the greater fulfillment. It says, Under Jesus' kingship, the faithful anointed saw the end of their spiritual exile and the restoration of pure worship. Really fascinating how they twist this around and make it fit exactly right so it looks like they're correct about everything. This is exactly why I came into this book, is to read this kind of thing right here. This is super fascinating to see how their minds work. Okay, so the last paragraph we read was promise number two, a restoration to the spiritual land of God's people. Here's uh, promise number three. This is paragraph 29. The resuming of gift offerings at Jehovah's altar. Just before we start into this, according to most Christians nowadays, we don't sacrifice animals. I mean, humans don't anymore to God because Jesus came back as the final sacrifice. So we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. That's the idea behind it. It, it. it seems intuitive. It's complete BS. It's complete garbage. There's no nothing to it. Like It's just empty. So let's give this a read. Paragraph 29, see what it says. The resuming of gift offerings at Jehovah's altar. Uh, let's see. Back in the first century CE, Christians were taught that they were to offer to God not literal animal sacrifices, but far more valuable gifts. The words that they spoke in praising Jehovah and preaching to others about him. During the centuries of exile, there was no organized arrangement to make such offerings. At the close of the exile, however, God's people were already making such sacrifices of praise. They were busy in the preaching work and happily praising God at their meetings. From 1919 on, the faithful and discreet slave, quote-unquote, put greater emphasis on the preaching work and organized it more thoroughly. Um, Jehovah's altar was thus overflowing with the sacrifices of an ever-growing army of praisers of his holy name. Quick note, uh, some of you may not know this, but they've mentioned the faithful and discreet slave a couple of times now. 
I forget what that is exactly, but it's the leadership, basically. It's the leadership of Jehovah's Witnesses. It's either the governing body or the anointed. I feel like it's just the governing body. Uh, but yeah, that's what the faithful and discreet slave is. So it says, from 1919 on, the faithful and discreet slave, or the leadership of Jehovah's Witnesses, put greater emphasis on the preaching work and organized it more thoroughly. Jehovah's altar was thus overflowing with the sacrifices of an ever-growing army of praisers of his holy name. So now Jehovah's Witnesses are telling their people that they... Oh, God, I love it. They're telling their people that they have to go in service and knock on doors. That's their sacrifice. That's their version of animal sacrifices. Where in reality, the Bible says that Jesus sacrificed himself so we didn't have to do the animal stuff anymore. Give me a break. This is ridiculous. They just don't give a fuck anymore, do they? Like, they, they really don't care anymore. Okay. So that was paragraph 29, uh, promise number three. Here's promise four. The sifting out of bad shepherds. Christ freed God's people from the, unscru I'm sorry, from the unscrupulous, self-serving false shepherds of Christendom. In Christ's flock, shepherds who acted like those false shepherds were removed from their position. Jesus, as the fine shepherd, made sure that his sheep were cared for. In 1919, he appointed his faithful and discreet slave. Remember, that's the leadership of Jehovah's Witnesses, basically. That small group of loyal, anointed Christians took the lead in providing spiritual food, so God's people were well cared for. In time, elders were trained to assist in caring for the flock of God. The inspired description recorded at Ezekiel 34, 15, and 16 has often been used to remind Christian shepherds of this standard set by Jehovah God and Jesus Christ. I really do find it interesting that they keep talking about the, you know, the, the group of loyal anointed Christians, blah, 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 who were appointed in 1919 when Jehovah's Witnesses did not exist at that time. Um, it was just the Bible students. Jehovah's Witnesses didn't exist until the 30s. But they're kind of pulling in the part of the history that they like and rejecting the part they don't like. It's convenient the way they do it, isn't it? Okay, so that was Promise 4. Let's give Promise 5 a read. Unity among worshipers of Jehovah. Over the centuries, Christendom has split into tens of thousands of denominations, including countless factions and sects that are hopelessly at odds. In contrast, Jehovah has done something truly miraculous with his restored people. His promise through Ezekiel, I will give them a unified heart, has seen a glorious fulfillment. Around the world, Christ has millions of followers from countless ethnic, religious, economic, and social backgrounds. Yet all are taught the same truths and carry out the same work in marvelous harmony. On the final night uh, I'm sorry, on the final night of his life on earth, Jesus earnestly prayed that his followers would be united. <clears throat> it says, read John 17, 11, and then 20 to 23. Let me just take a quick glance at that. It says, this is John 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I'm not sure that's talking about one mind. I think that may protect them by the power of your name and the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
Okay, I yeah, I don't think that that's talking about of one mind. I think that this is just from what I've read here. It seems like it's talking about um becoming one with God, like just literally merging with God or something. Uh, let me just read twenty to twenty three now, because that was just verse eleven. My my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who I believe. I'm sorry. I pray f- also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are. I'm sorry. Just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Oh my God! How many times are you gonna say this? So that they may be in, uh, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. What a freaking word salad that was! Oh my God! I could barely get through that. Um, interesting. I don't. I you know I'm still not really convinced that it's talking about like being of a unified mind like Jehovah's Witnesses are implying here or that they're outright saying, it seems to me like it's just talking about being one with God, like physically just joining with him or something. I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong there. But something else to make note of is the fact that the book of John has zero historical value, practically. I mean, it's just, if you're looking for historical value, um, Mark is probably your best bet but there's still really a lot in mark that's just that has no historical value john is just straight up made up there are made up stories in that uh like a lot of them and again i read a lot of this from uh like some some of bart Ehrman's books also richard carrier has written some books about jesus and the historicity of jesus they're scholars in the field and they know what they're talking about, and it's really fascinating to listen to them give public talks and read their books and stuff. You should, you guys should check it out. But anyway, yeah, uh, the book of John is just complete BS. Like, there's zero historical value to it. Uh, most of the stories are made up. Okay, so it says, read John 17, 11, 20 to 23. In our day, Jehovah has fulfilled that request in the greatest way. Okay, fascinating. Um, we're actually to the end of our time. We did not finish this, uh, chapter. This was a really long chapter, but we did get through the five promises and their greater fulfillment, quote unquote, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. So it was definitely a good read. Really glad that I had a chance to read through this part because this is the exact thing that I came here to this book looking for was these types of crazy things. So, uh, next time we'll finish the chapter. In fact, we may go just a little bit further. We'll see. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming and giving this a listen. I'll talk to you guys next week.